Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Jan Reinecke is the leading biodynamic grower in South Africa, cultivating the grapes that make his wonderful wines so distinctive. Listen to us chat about the weathered granite soils of the Polka Dry Hills and why they're so special for Syrah, what he's learned from his cows, his love of surfing and philosophy, and why, as he puts it, there can be no greatness without goodness. Hi, Johan. How are you? Hey, Tim. I'm very well. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Oh, it's a pleasure to, pleasure to hear your voice, I must say. I mean, you must be, I think you're in the Cape, aren't you, lucky man? I am. It's a beautiful day. It was quite hot earlier on, um, but now it's cooling down and there's a bit of a breeze. It's absolutely stunning. The, the, the mountains are turning a sort of a purpley pink color. Sun is setting almost probably in about 20 minutes, half an hour. Um, we had a braai earlier, as one does in South Africa on a Sunday RV. And it's just, yeah, it's lovely, man. Having a good time. And ha- how far are you from vintage? We've just started. So this week we took in a bit of sovi. Yeah. Um, not much, just uh, two pickings on two days. Uh, we had a little bit of rain on Wednesday, actually. and um, But next week it's going to be all systems go. Yeah. Looking good what? so far. Now listen, in this podcast, we're going to talk all things Rainica. Obviously, we might get a bit of surfing in, and we're certainly going to talk biodynamics uh, because <laughs> you, you always make biodynamics not only fun, but it makes sense to me. But I want to start by asking you how you got into this wine industry. I mean, were you were you brought up on a farm? Did your parents have a vineyard? How did you end up in the Polka Dry Hills? So um, I'm a complete newbie, to be honest. Um, we used to live in Cape Town, and my dad uh, was an academic, and he got a job at Stellenbosch University, but my mom was a farm girl, and she wanted to not live in town, but live outside Stellenbosch on a farm, so they bought a, a house in the countryside, and um, I was studying philosophy at the time. I was doing a, a degree postgrad, and I fell in love with a beautiful girl, and um she finished her studies before I did, and she got a job as an au pair in Pasadena, California. And I was told that, you know, if it was true love and, and meant to be, I could wait a year and, and she'd still be there for me. And I managed to wait, I think, about a month. And then I thought, never. So I jumped on a plane and, and, and flew to America. I lived there for a year. I had a wonderful time. And then when I came back, I had to resume my studies. And I think my parents were kind of, you know, if you're old enough to to jump off and, and, and do all these wild things, um, you must, you know, find a bit of a job until you can resume your studies. You can't just sit at home. And the funny thing is my, my hair grew quite long in America. And back in the day, South Africa was quite a conservative society. So I was on the waiting list at the local restaurant and I tried a number of places, and I ended up getting a job as a farm laborer. And um, I started working in the vineyards, and when I resumed my studies, I'd completely and utterly um, 
yeah, fallen in love with the vines as well, not just the girl. So today, the, the, the beautiful girl is my wife, Mila, and I'm, I'm still um, in love with the, with the beautiful vines that we work with every day. And you're on, you're on the farm that your parents bought, right? Absolutely. So yeah. it was, it was a, a more of a, a sort of a, uh, yeah, it grew, it grew considerably over the years. Um, but it didn't have vineyards on it, or did it, in the old it days? Did. It had some vines, um, but not many. It was more like a, a gentleman's country residence, if you can call it that. Uh, but it had some vines. Yeah. And um, yeah, it, it just, I just got lucky along the way. Yeah. Met some interesting people and the business grew and things just got better from there. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, I think, that you, you didn't study viticulture at university. You studied, as you said, philosophy with this focus on environmental ethics. I just wonder to what extent your, your background sort of outside the wine business, in a sense, has helped you in your approach to growing grapes. Has, you know, has it helped you to think outside the box a bit? You well, to be honest, it was incredibly intimidating at first um, because I I knew that I knew nothing and I was, you know, a bit concerned. But I think, you know, passion is a wonderful thing. It really helps one above and beyond the call of duty, especially if things are tough and you don't really know what you're doing. If you enjoy what you're doing, then you, you keep going. Um, but there were, yeah, um, I, it definitely... You know, they actually do things that played a huge role. The one was my, my studies. Um, I was reading the works of, of two philosophers, Arne Ness and uh, Aldo Leopold in particular. And they gave me a completely different understanding of my role in nature and how I could relate to the natural environment. And, uh, you know, I think back in the day, uh, we had to defend ourselves from lions and tigers and things. And these days we have to defend the, the lions and the tigers from ourselves. And with this switch uh, comes a, a, a responsibility to, to work differently with nature. And what, when I was reading these things, I couldn't just forget about them in the mornings when I started working in the vineyards. And I really looked at the vineyard and the soil and the birds and the bees and everything differently. And at the same time, I was also a farm laborer. So I was the guy being added the, the sprays and the, and the things to apply. And it didn't sit well with me. So from a cognitive and a sort of a practical experience, I was pushed to, yeah, to go in a sort of more sustainable way. And then I just, I just got lucky, man. I, I met these amazing people along the way that just came into in, in, into the picture and 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 were kind enough to help me and and and, and made a huge contribution to get and, us to where we are today I mean how did you become interested in, in in biodynamics so that was funny so I you know initially I just wanted to stop using herbicides and pesticides and fungicides and at the time um, it was a small little vineyard uh, it wasn't an established family farm, as I mentioned before, so I had to borrow money from the bank to sort of fund the project. And when I told the, the gentleman from the bank that I was going to go organic or try and be environmentally friendly, he, he urged me to do so cautiously because he saw it you know, as a very risky endeavor, and I, which was great advice. So I limited to a small portion of land, less than a quarter of a hectare, and I completely... An, utterly loved mother nature and she 
didn't love me back because I had weeds and pests and disease and the vines. Like it was an, actually an embarrassment <laughs> at harvest time. The guy was supposed to drive the grapes to the local cooperative, refused to get on the tractor, and I had to drive them myself. And I, I felt like the village idiot when I got there. And I couldn't understand it. And I, you know, I asked around and asked around. And it's interesting, but one of my professors um, in, in environmental ethics told me that he'd heard of this lady in Wellington that was farming in alternative ways, as he put it. And it was then that I met uh, Jean Malhervey, and she came to the farm, and for a long time, I only farmed organics. She explained to me that I was being organic by neglect and that I had to be so by design. And then I think it was baby steps. Once I got that right, she slowly but surely introduced me to biodynamics. I was highly skeptical uh, event, you know, initially, but it's made amazing changes to my life and to the farm. So I'm, I'm quite, a, quite a fan these days. I mean, do, do, how do you explain it in a nutshell? I mean, how would you explain it in two or three sentences to to a consumer, to somebody who doesn't know, they say, hey, what's that? What's biodynamic? Okay, so I think, you know, the way it was explained to me um, was to just first give me a, a very basic understanding of organics. And I had to understand that farmers don't use herbicides and pesticides and fungicides because they want to. They use them because they have to. And if you're not going to use them, you have to find other remedies. So there were simple stuff, like if you have... I don't know, snails, don't use snail bait, get ducks. Or if you, you know, have a problem with, with weeds in your vines, um, try and outgrow them with plants that can actually benefit the vineyards as opposed to just spraying them with herbicides and stuff. And, and that was the baby steps. And it was all about sustainability. And then one day, um, Jeanne came and she, she made a very interesting comment. She explained to me that in a, in a, in a teaspoon of soil, uh, there was more life than, well, in a teaspoon of healthy soil, there's more life than there's ever been people on planet Earth. And she asked me, you know, how many teaspoons I could imagine, you know, of soil around the planet and think of all that life and then think of all the life <clears throat> on the soil and in the waterways and in the air and the trees and the flowers and the things. And then consider that only there was only one living being that would waste every day, basically, and that was us. Nothing else in, na in nature wasted. So waste was a sort of a cultural concept and not a natural one. And she explained to me that that was really what biodynamics was about. It was about shifting the needle from being sustainable, which you are when you're organic, to becoming self-sufficient when you are biodynamic. And she used a very simple explanation. She said, you know, if you if you grow your grapes organically, it's it's wonderful. And because you're not using the herbicides and pesticides and fungicides and things, but you're going to still generate a lot of waste at harvest time, pips and stems and skins and stuff. And you can go and dump them on the other side of the hill where no one saw them, but, you know, it's not a good idea. And if you farmed with <laughs> cows organically, for example, that would also be much better than for them to grow up and feed lots and things. But they also would generate a lot of manure and, you know, bring too much nitrogen to specific areas where they slip. But the moment you combine the two, the, you fed the waste of the cows to the vineyards and the waste from the cellar back to the cows. And biodynamics was explained as looking for 
synergies between different organic uh, systems, farming systems. And it, it comes back from Rudolf Steiner's book, Agriculture. He's, he refers to the farm and he says it should be seen as an individuality. And he uses the metaphor of a human body. And now the different parts of your body work together, your heart and your lungs and everything to make the system work. And he was abhorred by this idea that a farm needed all these external inputs uh, all the time to keep it going. So that was just like the basic and probably the the biggest benefit of organics, I mean, of biodynamics. Oh, and then there were things like the, the preparations and, 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 and the, the lunar calendar, um, which are the things that people very often almost fixate on because they are the so-called voodoo of viticulture or the really yeah. out there esoteric stuff. Um, and then she just explained to me also in very simple terms that it was basically the oldest form of organic farming that existed. And it, it came from a time when our ancestors had a spiritual understanding of farming. And today we live in a time where we have a scientific understanding of farming. And the art was not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but to still employ the methodology because it worked, but to try and understand it in a more modern scientific way. Yeah, I think that's a very good explanation. Just tell us a little bit about the the terroir at Reinecke, you know, the soils, the geology, the climatic influences. I mean, and you know, is there a is there a polka dry style, is it, if you like? I mean, the, you know, you've got some exceptional producers around you, not just yourselves. Tell us a little bit about about where you are. Polka dry hills, just to give people a sense of place. It's it's absolutely stunning. I, I wish I could bring everyone here and just show them. But you know, we sort of obviously right on the southern tip of Africa. You get the Western Cape, and you get Cape Town and Stellenbosch, and about ten kilometers out of Stellenbosch. In the direction of Cape Town, um, you would find the Polka Drive Ward. And then there are hills, and they are granite outcrops. And they're incredibly old. They must be probably some of the oldest viticultural soils you can find anywhere in the world. Yeah. So they've been extensively weathered. And when you stand on these hills, um, and you sort of look towards your left, you'll see down there is the small uh, historic uh, town of Stellenbosch. And if you look to the right, you see the beautiful False Bay with Cape Point in the distance. And what you have is you've got southern slopes with poor granite soils, and you've got a considerable amount of altitude. It's, it's kind of funny, but you are, as the crow flies, about 14 k's from the sea. But the, the lowest vineyards started about 100 meters above sea level, and the higher uh, vineyards on the farm are at about 300 meters above sea level. So quite steep slopes. And if you think, you know, if you think Algin, you think 300 meters above sea level. You don't really think of Stellenbosch in that way. So it is a unique uh, pocket of Stellenbosch, and it makes very different wines. Um, I think it's very well suited to, to Syrah, for example, and uh, Shannon also. But it's, um, it's more sort of old school, refined European style wines that come from the Polka Dry uh, Ward. And what's really cool, as you mentioned, is that there are a, a bunch of dynamic, young, uh, energetic winemakers getting their fruit from this area and really starting to make incredible wines, which is what one needs, you know. It's, we're stronger together. So Yeah, I think you're super. right. I mean, and, and which varieties do you, do you work with, just to tell people? So as I as I mentioned, uh, Syrah is definitely a, a favorite. Um, I love Shannon as well. Uh, I think it's partly because we've got these two blocks that were born in, in 1976 and 1974. 
So they're old vines, and it's it's almost magical to walk amongst them. They've got these thick trunks, and they're just lovely. Um, Sauvignon Blanc seems to be doing really well. And then of the red varietals, um, I'd go for Cabernet Sauvignon, and in particular also Cabernet Franc has been really uh, uh, doing well in this area. Mm, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you one thing, just while we were checking about the vineyards and biodynamics, that your Twitter handle is Vinehugger, isn't it? And when <laughs> I see you in the vineyards, I always get the sense you want to kind of get down, literally hug, <laughs> hug a vine. I mean, do you have this emotional, amazing emotional bond with your vin- with your vines, don't you? I almost want to say who doesn't. I mean, it, it's amazing. I, I mean, they, they, I find them fascinating to think that that plant can stand in that space for 40, 50 years, come, you know, heat, rain, wind. They can't move an inch to the side. And they have these beautiful thick trunks. And, man, yeah, I don't want to go down that path because people already think I'm crazy for being biodynamics. But, <laughs> yes, they, they do kind of talk to me in a, in, a, in a kind of way. And I love them to bits. And you have a similar relationship with your cows, don't you? I mean, how many cows? How many cows you got on the farm? They've all got names, haven't they? It's not just a, just a, just a kind of herd, you know. It's hey, what can I say? They're they're not called the holy cow for nothing. No, they are. They're incredible. Um, your cows are very special. I don't know if it's because I come from Africa that I love them so much. Um, they are some of the most amazing animals that I've met. And they do indeed have names. Uh, we have an incredible herd of Nguni cattle. So if you think of, you know, the type of cattle you typically get in Europe, you'll get sort of uh, for beef, things like an Angus or a Hereford or, a, I don't yeah. know, Dexter or something. And then for milk, it would be a, a Jersey cow or, or something like that. But the Ngunis were not bred. They kind of evolved in Africa. So they're not bred for beef or for milk. And they are incredibly robust, uh, fertile. Um, they carve like a hen would lay an egg. Um, they are calm, even-tempered, and they've got a long history with mankind in Africa going back thousands of years. And they're multicolored. It almost looks like you splash them with paint. And they've got these insanely beautiful horns that curl up almost like a kudu's horns into the, into the, yeah, into the air. They've got a regal you know, uh, vibe about them. So, what do, what do they give you? Manure, obviously, but I mean, obviously. anything else they do? <laughs> they give so much, Tim. I don't know where to start. I talk too much. So I'm going to kind of try and condense it. I'll, I'll, I'll use two completely different examples of benefit. So, let's take a very materialistic one. If you have a cash flow problem and you're completely stressed out, the first place you should go is to the herd of cows because there is nothing calmer than a cow. And if you hang with them, they calm you down completely and immediately. <laughs> so if ever I'm stressed out, that's my my go-to place is, is the herd of cows and, and, and to watch those frolicking calves and things. They're amazing. But the other thing is, you know, if you it's it's I don't know if you know this, but if you if you think about soil in Africa and how it's built, it's a it's an interesting dynamic. If you go to Serengeti in Kenya, for example, or Kruger National Park. You have these herbivores that graze, and then you have the predators that bunch them together. And, and if some of the, I don't know, springbok or, or zebra or, or wildebeest sort of stray off in the distance and graze alone, they will definitely be, you know, a lion or something will, 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 will catch them. 
so they they bounced. But what happens is, if a it's amazing the benefit this has for plants and for the soil in particular. So if you grow grain in a normal conventional fashion and you fertilize it and whatever, you have a big sort of uh, organic material above the ground with relatively small roots below. But in nature, uh, what you see above is often reflected below. Now you can imagine if these wildebeest or whatever bunch or herd moves across the plains, they eat all the grasses down, you have a dieback of roots below the soil surface. And that is an unbelievable amount of organic matter below the soil. And then in their urine and in their manure, are all the microbes that is required to break this organic matter down and convert it to humus. And as the soil humus increases, so does the resilience of the plants that live there. And, they, and, and, and the, it, the water retention ability of the soil and a whole host of other benefits. So I don't have wildebeest and, and, and lions on the farm, but I've got cows and I've got a, a tractor <laughs> battery and a little electrical wire. So as soon as I've stopped harvesting the Sauvignon Blanc, yeah. I'm going to put them there. I'm going to bunch them. And that will be their first one. And they will go through the whole length of the farm. And through the course of the winter, I'll take them through the farm five times. And when I started with this, like 15 years ago, I could take them through the farm maybe twice. So it just shows you how they're building the soil, how they're building the humus. And the benefits are untold. You know, the, the irrigation has, has halved. The erosion is almost non-existent. It becomes a lot easier to farm organically sure. because the resilience of the plants improves. So, yeah, the cows are wonderful on multiple levels. <laughs> uh, one of your sayings, you've got lots of them, you know, is, is that surround yourself with people who are better than you. That's the way to succeed. I mean, you're being very modest because you're very good at what you do. I mean, who have you, who's most important in terms of the people you've surrounded yourself with? Is it Rosa Kruger, who's a, 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 you know, a, a vine hugger like you? She's a viticulture <laughs> expert. Is it Rudiger? Uh, Gretel, who's your winemaker? Is it your wife? You know, was it Nushka who was there as your winemaker as well? Yeah, exactly. You know, to say, it was actually, it was a, 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 a lady who studied with my wife who traveled through, through all the way from Amsterdam in a land cruiser through Africa. And she arrived here in the Cape during harvest time, this time of the year. And she worked with me for three weeks. And she was incredibly well educated and went to top universities and very successful lady. And I said to you, know, I give a, a humble farmer from the southern tip of Africa some advice that I can at least understand. And she said, just, you know, surround yourself with people better than you. Otherwise, you limit your business to your own ability. Hmm. And it is the best advice I ever got. So in the beginning, I was the, the tea lady and the, and the finance guy and the, the, the grower and the winemaker. And it's, it's been a while, but today there are incredible people. So, I mean, let's start at the top. So, Ruesa is next level. Um, I think what Ruesa can teach people about vineyards. Um, let's start again. What Ruesa knows about vineyards, she cannot convey all of that knowledge because it's, it's not just knowledge. It's, it's intuitive. I don't know if you've ever seen Ruesa Prunavine. So if she walks into the vineyard in pruning season, she doesn't say, okay, we're going to prune it like this way or this way. You must kind of stand back and, and shut up for a bit. And then she goes into this zone with the secateurs 
and she feels her way through it. And, and like after a few minutes, she's like, okay, this is how we're going to do this block. And the next block she does differently. Yeah. And it is amazing to see that. So, so Rosa loves the vines and looks after them better than I, than I could. And then I have a, a young gentleman, uh, Ishan. And Ishan is a, a biodynamic guru. And he loves all things biodynamics and soil and microbes. And he makes the best compost you've ever seen in your life. And the two of them has, has really upped the, the quality and the production of the farm over the years. On the winemaking side, um, Rudiger has been with me since 2006. And he's also one of those guys who, who's kind of a behind the scenes, works really hard, never takes the you know, uh, uh, accolades for it. Um, and I always see him as someone with the ability to taste the future. So when we taste wines, we can all sort of have a good idea of what we're tasting at the moment. But he's got an uncanny ability to see where the wine's going to go in a few years' time. And he's the kind of person that you need when you do the blending and, and the barrel selection and stuff. And then Nushka was obviously, oh man, what can I say about Nushka? She's just like the best winemaker ever, larger than life, <laughs> incredible person. Um yeah, so it, it's this kind of thing, and, and it goes everywhere. And Lausanne in the office, it's just wonderful people on the farm. And I, I feel truly blessed that that they are prepared to to work with me in this dream. Yeah. I mean, I, another of the things that you, you say you like to cite is there can be no greatness without goodness. And, you know, I, I think that your workers are very involved in the stuff that you do and, 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 and you, you give a lot back to them in all sorts of senses, really. Just tell us a bit about the Cornerstone project and how you empower your workers, because I think it's very inspiring the way you do it. So that was a funny thing, man. It, 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 it actually, it was born out of, I mean, it sounds very generous, but it was actually born out of desperation. So as a farm laborer, um, I was quite shocked, you know, given apartheid in the history of South Africa, I, it just so happened that there weren't many white farm laborers working in the vineyards back in the day. And, you know, you can see people work hard and you can kind of think, well, they're working hard. But if you actually join them in that heat and the cold and the wind and the rain every day, all day in work, I was stunned. I mean, I couldn't keep up. And they worked so hard. And then at the end of the week, we were paid a pittance. And I thought it sucked because wine is so beautiful. And how can you, you know, beauty can't come from ugly. You can't have such a beautiful product and build a beautiful house on a weak foundation. So what makes this difficult is that the farmers themselves are also struggling financially, of course. And there's a huge unemployment uh, problem in South Africa. So I thought, well, let's, the only way we're going to make money is, is, is not to ask for, for, for bigger salaries, but would be to start making our own wine. And we, we only had two cows then, a Daisy and Clanky, and I took them out of the shed and we made a wine that I thought was glorious, but it was actually pretty terrible, to be honest. <laughs> and I then invited the kindly bank manager to come and loan us a, a couple of million rands so we could start a wine business. <laughs> And um, this gentleman was polite, but he said, you know, with all due respect, you've got a degree in philosophy, no viticulture, no oenology, no commerce. And most of your colleagues, <coughs> excuse me, are 
illiterate, which was true. They had to leave school at a young age to help their parents put food on the table and stuff. So, you know, I would reach people enter this industry and they lose a fortune. Now, you guys are kind of poor already, to put it bluntly, so I wouldn't go there if I were you. And I thought, you know, I don't know, my parents always taught me if you really want something, no matter what the odds, if you go for it, you can do it. And this was just what I was going to do. But my colleagues declined. It, for them, it was a bridge too far. To, you know, to give you an idea, they didn't have money for a mobile phone or even a bicycle. And now they had to stand, you know, borrow millions of rands for this pie in the sky thing. So they said, you know, thanks, but, but no thanks. And that was, it was sad because I thought, you know, you must have a dream and in life. And I read one of your, um, I think this gentleman at the PPE chair in Oxford, his name was um, Amartya Sen. He was an Indian philosopher in development ethics. And he spoke about the capability to choose is so important. If you want to give people power, you must give them choice in life. And I thought that was easy. And let's, you know, instead of my dream, let's hear what, what my colleagues' dreams were, were. And they wanted two things. They wanted housing and they wanted education. So I thought that's easy. So I'll do that. We'll, let's go and buy everyone houses and we'll promise to send your kids to university while we're building this wine business. So I was obviously very idealistic and I, I didn't have a, a degree in commerce. <laughs> and a year later... The bank came knocking on my door, and it was very bad. <laughs> and eventually, I went to another bank to help me pay off the first bank. And then I got to a stage where I realized that I'd kind of painted myself into a corner here, and I couldn't give the wine away for free because nobody knew about the brand, let alone sell it. And I was I was shocked. I I I recall walking up the lane of trees and hearing the, the birds singing in the trees. And I thought that, you know, if I, if I go bankrupt, no one will employ me with a degree in philosophy and I won't be able to, to borrow money because I'm insolvent. But at least even the beggars can listen to birdsong for free. And it was at, at that lowest, darkest hour, this, this lady came to the farm and she tasted the wines and she said, okay, and it's a Syrah and a, a Shannon and a Sauvignon, but you've got a, a cornerstone. Why, why does this one have a name? And I said, well, it's, 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 it's for the workers because they're the foundation of the house, the cornerstone of the business. And it was my lucky day. She, she was a, a CNN journalist, or not a journalist, but she was an events organizer for CNN, the, the broadcast channel. And they had a big Africa uh, Journalist of the Year Award in Johannesburg. And she flew me up and I, I handed over the prizes and I, we, we poured Cornerstone on the evening. And I was lucky enough to, to meet uh, our best uh, person ever out of South Africa, uh, Nelson Mandela, the next day. And it was insane. Um, it was wonderful. And that, that is it, you know. That's the, it, unfortunately, I live in, 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 in South Africa, not in Hollywood, so it didn't end there. Uh, <laughs> Half of the guys sold the houses, uh, pocketed the cash and, and ran out of it. Fortunately, the other half didn't. Uh, some of the kids dropped out. But today, the lady who runs uh, Reinecke office is uh, Lazan uh, Yafta. And I used to prune vines with her dad. 
and my mom used to, to 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 work in the kitchen for my parents. So it's it's in, in, it's incredible. You've, you know, you've you passed open, it on in a sense. Yeah, yeah. and you, yeah. you open your eyes as a baby somewhere in the world, and a lot of what is to come has already been determined. So yeah. I think if you have a chance, it's it's wonderful. You're lucky. Yeah. Listen, I, I want to ask you a little bit about climate change because um, I think you said to me once that farming in the way that you do helps your vines to cope better with with, with stress, particularly things like drought and, and heat. Um, would that be fair? I mean, how do you see climate change affecting the wine industry in the Cape? See, for me, it's a, it, it is a really a serious issue. I mean, it's, it's hot. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't think we have to convince anyone that climate change is real. I think that's, well, I hope not. I'm sure there are non-believers, but I'm convinced that climate change is real. And it, it scares me. And I, I feel complicit. And that makes me, you know, yeah, really think about it. And if you think of the five biggest contributors to climate change unfortunately modern agriculture is one of the big five so by the same logic it can also be one of the big redeemers it can be one of the levers we can use to really reverse it or to make a difference so if you can farm one way which will worsen it and you can farm another way and i'm not saying it has to be organic or biodynamic it must just be regenerative i think is a good term where you build up as opposed to break down. And collectively, we can make a huge difference as farmers on the planet. So, so farming and climate change is a, is a very big thing for me. And I think if you're, if you're lucky enough and privileged enough to have a farm and to be a farmer, one must at least consider this seriously in how you, how you go about your, 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 your running your business. Um, in a practical sense, um we've seen a, we've had a lot of benefits i think if you look at the soils you see things and if you look at the vines you see things so if you look at the soils um especially in the area where we where we farm when we started the the humus levels were very low they were 0.5 0.7% which is extremely low it's because they're so old and so extensively weathered and we've now it's taken us 20 years but we've managed to build it up to about 4.3, in certain pockets, which is huge. And what we've essentially done is taken carbon on behalf of everyone and, and managed to, you know, put it back into our soils and to bind it. But it's paid huge dividends to the farm because what happens is if you can build your humus levels to 5%, the vines that live there, their resilience and their ability to withstand disease and drought and things can improve improve or increase by as much as 300%. These aren't figures that I'm sucking out of my thumb. It, it was conveyed to me by a, a Dr. Uwe Hoffman from, from Geisenheim University years ago. And we've seen it. So, you know, despite it being warmer and drier, uh, the, the water that we use on our farm is, is, is half of what it was uh, 20 years ago. Um, erosion doesn't really take place anymore because when the winter rains do come, and these days they come in, in shorter and more intense bursts. They don't just run off the yield. The, the, the humus acts as a sponge and it just sucks all the water up and holds it. And it retains that moisture a lot longer for the vines. So those are sort of the soil benefits. And then if you imagine a, a, an organic or a, a biodynamic vineyard, very often they don't grow as vigorous as their conventional counterparts. So, so you have a... 
uh, the smaller canopy has a lower transpiration rate or doesn't require as much water to function optimally. So you hold your water better and you actually need less of it. And the vines become stronger. So they're smaller vines but stronger vines, are they in yes. a sense? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, they're stronger and, 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 and because they don't have so many leaves, they also don't, you know, uh, need so much water. The, trans the overall transpiration per vine is also a lot less. So there are many benefits yeah. um, between sustainable, regenerative, organic, biodynamic, permaculture, whatever, and climate change. I mean, we, we could chat about this stuff all day. And I, I love walking through vineyards with you because you're so interesting. And I think your observations on 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 individual vines, you know, you're vine hugging, as it were. But we've got to, sadly, stink to our times. So I'm going to have to ask you the last question, Richie, which is, how do you how do you switch off from wine? I know you're a huge surfer and a very good surfer. I, I think virtually all South African wine makers <laughs> Is that your main kind of outlet outside of wine? I mean, you're a big reader, aren't you? You're you're a thinker. I mean, your wife's a painter. Do you have a an artistic side as well? Well, I can draw stick men, but not more more than that. So, I, I, unfortunately, I suck at painting. I, I wish I could. I love to to look at it. I've tried, but um, fortunately, my my daughters take after their mom more than their dad. Um, philosophy, obviously, I still love it. I, I would love. I never finished my masters, and my dream is to one day go back and finish it and and to continue. So in the evenings, uh, next to my bedside table, it's kind of weird. People probably think I'm a funny guy whatever but i i enjoy reading uh philosophy books i find them fascinating um but they were um, uh, unbelievably clever people and they i don't know it's it's as if they had more time to think about stuff than we do and i really i i get amazed by where they go and and what they thought about in the daytime i like a bit of action so i love surfing um but i also love nature so uh, if I can't surf, I'll go for a swim in the sea. But I'm also a fan of the mountains. I love the mountains. Uh, this morning, for example, I went for a long uh, mountain bike ride in the in the Yonkersuk Mountains for a couple of hours, and it's so nice. You know, it's quiet and it's cool up there, high on the side of the mountain. And there's no one to to travel you or to see you, and it's a, it's a good time for reflection and to calm down. And and often, if you have uh, issues, unresolved issues that you, you struggle to, to see, you know, what, what is the best solution for this. When I'm on my bike riding, riding through the mountains, it just comes, you know, out of nowhere, uh, an idea. And then, this is a funny one. I don't know why I like it so much, but I, I kind of love martial arts also. <laughs> so I've been doing karate for you know, about 25 years already. I recently started doing some uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I like it because it humbles one. Um, you can think you're great, but when you step on the mat, what you think counts nothing. It really, it's amazing. You, you, there is no gray area. You win or you lose. And you, yeah, it, 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 it's, it learns, it teaches one to, success can come to anyone. It's not about the, the quickest or the fastest or the, the most natural uh, uh, athlete out there. It's about the person who just rocks up every week and just 
you know, does the basics. And then over time, the results come. And it, 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 it's, it's been a very valuable life lesson for me as well to just, you know, just, just keep on doing the right thing over a long enough period of time and then success does come. Yeah, fantastic. What a great way to end. Um, yeah, and it's been fantastic chatting to you as ever. Hope to see you at the Cape very soon. I'll be there in April, so I'll see you very soon. Tim, thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity and also on behalf of yeah, everyone in South Africa, not just the wine industry, you've done so much for our country. You really have put us on the map. Thank you for that. It's awesome. My pleasure. See you soon. Okay. Ciao. Johan is one of the wine industry's nicest people, as well as a great thinker and viticulturist. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Bordeaux winemaking legend Bruno Prats. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles, and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tim Atkin and on Instagram at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.